Welcome to another episode of Changing Faith with Mark and Leanne Vaughn. Hi there, everyone. Thank you for saying hi, Leanne. And, and our guest this time, and, and Art, you're going to have to forgive me. I didn't ask you ahead of time. How do you want me to introduce you? Well, simply Art. <laughs> this, is, this is Art. I'm a, a, a reverend or father or... Reverend is fine. Yes. Okay. That's, so that's Reverend Art Otto. Pastor. And, pastor. Yeah. And the reason it's uh, significant to have you join us as we're talking about what happened at Seminex is because you actually graduated from Concordia Seminary in 1965 I and were a, a firsthand observer of the events we're going to be talking about. Yes. Yes, indeed. So, yes. so what we're talking about essentially is a denomination-wide occurrence of a challenge to the faith of discovering a different way of looking at the Bible. And instead of an individual having to decide, do I stay in my current church? Do I find a different fellowship? Um, why, why am I unable to speak with people I used to have perfectly unified fellowship with, except now that we're talking about what happened to an entire church, an entire denomination, the synod, I guess we could, use those terms interchangeably sort of yes yes because right. it's not a, a geographical district it's actually a a, a yes sir a branch of lutheranism uh, yes okay uh -huh. yes so art thank you so much for joining us well my pleasure so i'd like to have you fill in and correct what i say about the lcms lcms referring to the lutheran church minuri minuri <laughs> missouri synod missouri synod uh-huh yes so some people may have heard of that. It's, uh, I believe it's the largest Lutheran church body in the United States or second largest. It was. It at, was at the time. At the time. Okay. Right. So right. now it's probably. Yeah. Yeah. The, now it's probably second behind the ELCA, I think. Yeah. I haven't looked at, at the statistics yeah. recently, but okay. uh, yeah, there was a merger of the, into the ELCA, which made it larger than Missouri Senate. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So this, uh, to give people a little background as to what is LCMS, well, it kind of goes back to the 1800s. It's either the 1820s or 1830s, depending on which Wikipedia page you believe, <laughs> that a bunch of Saxons immigrated to Perry County, Missouri, because back in Prussia, where they came from, the king of Prussia, not the band, but the actual king, was causing the churches to have to unite and telling them what to do, uh, trying to unite them under a single liturgy. Is that your understanding of? Yes, although I have to admit, I really don't know that much about those the, the, the reason for the immigration to America. Okay. But uh, yes, that's my understanding. It, that, yeah. That's the reason some give for right. it anyway. Yes. Uh, so the, this Perry County, Missouri, I'm not quite sure how they found it, but I, I looked and I found out that it's named after Oliver Hazard Perry, an American naval commander. And there's actually two Perry counties. There's another one in Kentucky that... Um, is also named after Oliver Hazard Perry and has its county seat in Hazard. Oh, really? <laughs> I was not aware of that. Okay. So it, uh, I think it was used for a television uh, setting in the 80s on a show my mother hated because of all the car crashing and waste that she <laughs> couldn't stand to see. Oh, and also the, one of the characters' names was pronounced Anus. Oh, really? It was spelled E-N-O-S, but she's... She didn't mind the Daisy Dukes? 
<laughs> that didn't affect her. Oh, but okay. she did not like that over and over, this guy was called Anus. Wow. Because of the accent. Right. It wasn't, you know, never mind. Um, and then this group of Saxon Lutherans joined together in 1847 with a bunch of other uh, immigrated Lutherans, I guess, uh, from exactly. all over, even all the way to New York. Exactly. And eventually their name came to be Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Yes. It was a longer name before, and then they dropped it down to just simplify it to that. Exactly. Yes, yes. Right. And they had a number of seminaries, uh, a couple of major ones, one in Springfield, Illinois, and another one in St. Louis. Correct. Mm -hmm. And the one in St. Louis was Concordia Seminary. Right. And I guess it used to be located more downtown than it is now. Because uh, well, now it's way out in the county. Originally, mm -hmm. it was in Perry County. A one-room oh, okay. log cabin, <laughs> and uh, there's a replica of it on the, uh, it's now Clayton, Missouri. In Clayton? Uh, one of the uh, suburbs of St. Louis. Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, that's now relocated and uh, kind of a historic site there on the campus of Concordia Seminary St. Louis. The log cabin is? The log cabin. Yes. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Do you remember anything about the campus, Leanne? Not a lot. I remember <laughs> looking at it. Um, I was actually looking into taking some classes there when we were in St. Louis, but uh -huh. didn't actually take any. But, but yeah, we did look at it. Just a little uh, side note. Uh, when these Saxons, uh, they came across on three boats uh, up the, uh, the, their port of entry was New Orleans. Hmm. Most of the European immigration people came through Ellis Island, New York, and then filtered through to the Great Lakes mainly. That would be more where the uh, Scandinavian Lutherans, the Norwegian, Swedish people oh, came through. okay. And that's why they settled kind of Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota. <laughs> Prairie Home Companion. Prairie Home Companion is yeah. right there. Uh, the, the, these, these three ships that came out of, uh, I think they sailed out of Bremen. I'm not sure. That's the. Uh, that's actually what I read. Yes. Okay. Uh, came up uh, the New Orleans, entered New Orleans, and then came up the Mississippi. Uh, of course, it brought their resources with them, with the interest of buying property. Got, in fact, went up to St. Louis, and um, my what I, the story I heard, the history I understand is that the Episcopalian Church at that time uh, sheltered them, sponsored them, as it were. And then they found, eventually, shortly thereafter, uh, this area down in Perry County. Uh, so they bought that. There was uh, quite an ambitious uh, commercial uh, enterprise, at least a dream at that time, to build that big bridge across, and that would be the competitors to St. Louis if you had a bridge coming from southern Illinois across to southern Missouri, hmm. which never materialized. Interesting. A little, another real quick side note. My mother, my mother, my wife is a uh, teacher in, was trained in Concordia Teachers College in Seward and uh, became a teacher in the church's schools, elementary grades. Her first assignment was Perry County. Oh. <laughs> Missouri. So, so you actually know Perry County. So I would go down to visit my fiance at that time in Perry County. <laughs> And uh, listen to the folks there. They still had quite a heavy German accent, but... Uh, wow. Yes. Interesting. Uh, and this was in the 60s? 
Yes. It was, wow. How many decades ago has it been? <laughs> but you were there. I was there. We, we yeah. were. But, well, I guess we existed in the 60s, but for not, not for long. A couple months. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that time when you were there would have been right when this uh, historical critical <laughs> method of looking at the Bible was being taught in the seminary. That's correct. At Concordia. And what is the historical critical method or technique? What, how do you look at the Bible differently than a straight, literal, these are the words written by God, and so let's observe them as if God himself wrote them to us in English? Yes, that's a, that's a good analogy. The uh, historical critical method really recognizes that the Bible is a production of people, humans, over a long period of time. So it's historical. Uh, and uh, to recognize that it is the understanding of the people of faith at that time, in that particular milieu of uh, the uh, civilization in which they were living, and how they were reflecting upon this, um, this faith that they had at that time. So in the historical critical method, one of the first uh, principles is that whatever is on the page there came out of a distinctly historical circumstance and probably, well, it was written most uh, accurately to be described as written for a specific purpose that was facing them or issue facing them at that time. And so the critical method has to do with being observing of what was going on historically, culturally, economically, politically, uh, and to recognize that the words of prophets in, a, in the Old Testament particularly uh, were speaking to this milieu of all the forces going on in the culture at that time. And with that, uh, the recognition that the New Testament accepts that Old Testament as God's, as a word of divine guidance for people uh, of faith, that the New Testament also recognized and said, yes, this is the speaking the will of God that came down for the many centuries through the testimony of faith by the people. So the historical critical method would want to try to uh, understand the, the cultural milieu in which all of this was produced, first of all. And then, secondarily, what does this mean for us? Does it give us insight for our lives today, even though perhaps the circumstances have changed somewhat, or maybe, in, you know, incredibly, there still might be reason to look at this as uh, understanding this as still a message, a divine guidance from God. So some of the um, things you might see as a result of that would be looking at the creation account in Genesis 1 and then the other creation account in Genesis 2 and seeing that it looks through scholarly research that maybe these were written by different authors and were for more poetic literature. Yes. yes. Rather than a, a, a journalist account of what's going on in front of them. Yes. Uh, the, the general global academic world uh, has looked at the ancient texts 
and tries to determine just how they were written and who wrote them and what are characteristics of the authors. And as the example there, the uh, Genesis accounts were um, very, very clearly identified as uh, several um, several authors had their hands in them. The Yahwist, uh, the Old Testament, uh, basically, uh, uh, four main sources were J-E-D-P, the Yahwist, the Elohist, uh, the Priestly, and the Deuteronomist. Uh, each of them having maybe be, to be thought of not only as an individual, perhaps, who uh, was a kind of a leader or, or, or a spokesman, but perhaps schools of thought that followed for maybe generations in the tradition of the Yahwist, in the tradition of the Yahwist. Uh, for instance, the Yahwist, uh, a characteristic of it, just by way of illustration here, is uh, this God who is so terribly close and intimate with people, as opposed to the... Uh, the priestly uh, writers would describe the action of God as being so really perfect and in harmony with everything. Hmm. Um, the Yahwist would have God getting down into the clay with his hands and forming a, a Barbie doll, as it were, out of the mud and breathing into it and say, come alive, you know. Uh, the priestly... Uh, uh, writers and school of thought would describe the creation as being so perfectly, harmoniously uh, ordered. The first day, the second day, the third day, it just really came off as if God was doing this, <laughs> which he was. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and God would look at this and say, it is good. So those distinctive traits to, to excuse me, recognize them and to acknowledge them and to maybe honor them and to see how they add more to our understanding than a just a, a, a attempt to, to find truth in just being a factual uh, journalistic newspaper report, as if somebody were standing there watching the creation of the world happen and wrote it down, and here are his notes. Um, so uh, I find that to be, myself, just adding a personal note here, to be extremely exciting, intriguing, uh, uh, very inspiring to me. And uh, I love the, the poetic nature of so much of the Old Testament uh, writings. Okay, so that, that gives us an idea of historical critical versus the more straightforward... Um, black and white reading, which yes. I guess. So this was going on at, at uh, Concordia Seminary. Yes. And in the 60s and early 70s, it was noticed by the larger congregation of the Missouri Synod. And they didn't necessarily understand it or like it or want it being taught that way. And to the point that there was an investigation. There was. And they interviewed professors. This this would have been uh, after you graduated. Uh, that would be just right after I graduated. Correct. And eventually, the president was fired, and the faculty, in solidarity with solidarity with him, uh, did not 
teach. It was essentially a strike. Yes. And then the students uh, considered themselves to leave in exile in 1974, I believe. That's correct. Yeah, the exile was in 1974. So the New Orleans Convention was kind of the point at which the uh, administrative, legislative uh, assembly decided uh, we cannot, uh, as a church body, accept these faculty teachings as being uh, acceptable in our Missouri Synod. Um, and let me just uh, add this personal uh, reflection. I now, these many years later, see how perhaps the dynamis, uh, that, that, that the forces that were at work here, those who hadn't been exposed to some of the more uh, critical ways in which you look at literature, in the Bible particularly, felt threatened uh, because uh, they had no other frame of reference than to look at truth as being, okay, uh, this is the way it was, uh, this is truth through and through, it's historical truth, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, geologically true, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, you know, that uh, the, the world was created in seven days, and they were strictly the days like we understand, 24 hours each. Uh, there is no room for hyperbole, there's no room for, uh, for what is called myth that became quite a controversial term. Uh, There's no room for a poetic expression. It had to be strictly literal truth, as if everything in this world is scientifically, empirically validated. So very concrete thinking. Very concrete, yes. And uh, allowing nothing of the uh, a sense of awe and mystery of God, which... Uh, Sometimes is best expressed poetically. Sometimes. And they would really see this as coming from the outside world with advances in science that show things like the earth is not flat and the firmament is not <laughs> a dome above us. Uh, exactly. Uh, yeah, it was threatening, I think, because, uh, again, having no other reference to go by than their own basic historical, the way in which they looked at it as being flat and very uh, empirical, um, found it to be threatening to, uh, you know, if you let this kind of thing be interpreted, for instance, uh, the creation may not have occurred uh, as recently as they wanted it to, to think it occurred. Uh, you let evolution in on any little scale, why the next domino to fall might be something like whether God indeed exists mm -hmm. and uh, everything goes down the drain from there. So it's kind of a Peter and a Dyke mentality. Uh, we got to plug this one hole because who knows what's, where it's going to lead from here. Yeah, it, regardless of the truth of it, it's <laughs> yes, right. What yeah. what it could lead to? Yeah, in in the Nazarene Church, we we had a uh, a saying like that. It was, "Why don't uh, Nazarenes believe in premarital sex?" Well, they believe it might lead to dancing. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> I had heard that uh, as uh, something that was descriptive of the Baptists. But <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there may be some similarities yeah, there. Right. So. Uh, 
with the students having left uh, after the faculty, I guess it all kind of happened at the same time, within a short period of time, they eventually just, the faculty and the students started their own seminary. They did. They called, did. called Seminex. Right. Uh, which is actually the title of a documentary. I don't know if you've seen it, the the Tim Frakes documentary on Seminex. No, I have not. It's uh, it's free. It's on Vimeo, and I'm going to put a link in the description so okay. that people listening okay. to the podcast can also see um, Seminex, Memories of a Church Divided by Tim Frakes. Hmm. Do you know the Frakes family? I do not. Okay. No. They, they, they were involved also uh-huh. in the time of Seminex, uh, either at as a student or as a professor? I might add that uh, I was a pastor uh, in a church in the West County of St. Louis uh, and uh, was a pastoral supervisor for students who would come and do their experiential work in parish ministries. Uh, So I had constant contact with students and with the seminary itself. And uh, in fact, I was doing some graduate work there as well. So I uh, was on the campus very, very frequently during these times. When the split, when the decision came that um, the professors were to be removed from their office simply because of the, they were described as not teaching, their teachings were not consistent with what was expected of them in the Missouri Center. Uh, there was a kind of a shock and uh, what do we do now? And... Um, there was this uh, period of trying to determine now, now what do we do and who are we? So uh, the students uh, helped the faculty uh, who were involved. I think there was, boy, numbers are escaping now, but a huge majority of the faculty were involved. There were about four or five who were not so judged to be... Uh, uh, to be removed from their offices. So students helped faculty move out of the faculty housing they had and find different uh, housing. Um, they, of course, were to leave. They were without a paycheck. Uh, and uh, and Seminex was founded, and I think it was St. Louis University that maybe offered some kind of assistance and kind yeah, of they, they actually them. met right there real close to the main campus just north of Lindell. North on North Grand in uh, what I know to be the old Woolworth building. Um, I think that's correct, yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh-huh. I guess I know that because it still said Woolworth on it when we lived there. I think so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, yes. my, my medical school being just, you know, what, a quarter mile south there on yeah. North Grand. So, North right. yeah, I know that right. area too. Yeah. And Seminex is a, a contraction. It's Seminary in Exile is the longer term, and they shortened it to just simply be Seminex. Looking at this from the outside, it looks like there's a bit of theatrics to it. They uh, they planted crosses with their names on them. They did. They did. On uh, the seminary uh, grounds. Yes. There was a- they, uh, they boarded up the uh, entry where the tower is there, and they wrote uh, in exile or exiled. On yes. the on the boards they put over the entry, it was terribly emotional, and as one of the ways I'm sure they were trying to work through their grief. Yeah, and uh, and they you know really regarded it as a death, as a passing of an era, and uh, no longer uh, no longer was the place where the uh, kind of 
scholarship and uh, collegiality that they had known uh, no longer existed. And uh, so they planted crosses. Yeah. Wow. So these students and faculty uh, start their own seminary uh, that, well, all of them came from LCMS. So where would they get calls to pastor after this happened? Well, it was, in fact, a very confusing time. Uh, there was uh, then a number of churches and pastors of churches who, uh, who, who came to say, no, we will, we will not abide this. We will not support the official Missouri Synod uh, closing down of the seminary for what was described as not acceptable teaching. We will support these people. And uh, out of that uh, came a group of um, what was called ELIM, Evangelical Lutherans in Mission, uh, a kind of a ad hoc kind of conference, as it were, of pastors particularly and other church leaders uh, and congregations who supported, uh, would continue their support, uh, recognizing the need that there had to be support for these who had already started their theological education and the professors who had engaged so many years in teaching. Uh, there needed to be support. And so Elam was a kind of the first organization to provide the support for the Seminex community. Uh, from that, then, there was a development of what was called the AELC, the Association of Evangelical Lutheran Churches, uh, of these, of these uh, displaced, if I could use that term, Missouri Synod clergy, students, congregations, people. Uh, and it became kind of the, a fourth large, or one of the fourth. If you, if there, at that time, there were three major Lutheran strands, the Missouri Synod maybe being the largest. Uh, there was a Lutheran church in America, LCA, and uh, that basically had its roots back in the East Coast and English uh, speaking immigrants that came to America centuries earlier, and then the Norwegian and Swedish, well, Norwegian group that was uh, known as the American Lutheran Church, or ALC. So they had those three, Missouri Synod, the LCA, and the ALC. And so the AELC became a fourth group that said, eventually, why don't we Lutherans maybe get together and of course, the, LC, the Missouri Synod said no. The LCA and the and the ALC said yes. And hmm. the ELC. So this is in the eighties. That would be the eighties. Nineteen eighty-three, I believe, the yes. Evangelical Lutheran Church of America ELCA. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yes. So a uh, nineteen eighty-three, but yet in the early eighteen hundreds. <laughs> Let's let's see a similarity here. The people who became the Missouri Synod <laughs> left Germany because they didn't want to get together with other churches. And then in you know three hundred years later, it's it's kind of the same thing, isn't it? That they don't want to be together with the other churches. They're not uh, well, right. Finding uh, fellowship outside of their own group. 
One of the leaders that uh, evolved out of uh, the Saxon immigration in the 1800s that came to the St. Louis area, then South of Perry County, uh, uh, shortly thereafter was uh, a pastor by the name of Walther. And he led this Missouri Synod group of Lutherans in America, these German-speaking uh, uh, Lutherans, in an uh, outreach to other Lutherans to incorporate them. So the name of the Missouri Synod was, first of all, the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, Ohio, and other states. <laughs> and uh, the the headquarters had uh, was originally then established in Chicago, and it was a, a an effort to bring together the Lutherans that are coming to America. Uh, the irony, of course, is that uh, instead of continuing in that tradition of reaching out and, and engaging all the other Lutherans, uh, there was a retreat from them, and uh, Missouri Synod uh, became kind of its own entity, not to be uh, affiliated with, or they, they affiliate, but uh, not to be connected organically with any of the other Lutheran groups. Hmm. So one of the things I came across talked about how before this happened, the Missouri Synod was uh, a mix of people, uh, politically and philosophically. And that after it happened with all of the more progressives kind of becoming a part of these other bodies you, you were just describing, right. it kind of left all that there was in the Missouri Synod to be uh, a very heavily conservative group. Yes. Not, not very mixed anymore. And now you and all the people associated with Seminex and, and others aren't currently affiliated with this Missouri Synod that you all used to be a part of. That's correct. Yes. Uh, they still keep me on their mailing list, of course. They would like the donations to the <laughs> various institutions. Uh, and, of course, I have family. Uh, all my siblings, I th all but one, are part of the, still remain in the Missouri Synod. Not always that supportive and enthralled with the direction that Missouri Synod has taken. Uh, but it became a, uh, an issue among families uh, in where fathers and sons would sometimes come to verbal uh, argument about who's right and who's wrong, that type of thing. And, uh, quite an emotional thing. But, uh, yeah. Uh, Congregation splits all over the synod? Congregations did split. Yes, they did. Uh, and, again, the, the words mainly that were used to summarize is liberal or conservative. And uh, conservative means uh, uh, some of the words that became very, very uh, important were inspiration or verbal inspiration or inerrancy of the verbally inspired Bible. Inerrancy being meaning, was given the meaning to um, that whatever God, whatever the Bible says could never be wrong. Now, inerrancy itself, uh, Dr. Peepcorn, uh, one of the professors that was dismissed by the Missouri Synod, was quick to point out that that is really not a theological term. It's never come down through the history of theology. It's 
astronomy, that the planets are inerrant. They continue in their orbits, and predictably so. But we've never applied that to the Bible. But that's part of a kind of, uh, what, evangelical motion that was in America at the time, a movement in the time. Uh, there are other church bodies who picked up on this verbal inspiration, uh, particularly in the uh, evangelical movement in the South, the, the Baptist traditions, uh, and I think the Nazarene. To, mm -hmm. to, to, uh, well, they, they um, in, in their general assemblies, they've had this come up. Uh -huh. uh, and it's inerrancy is the word they're trying to get in. Yes. And we have groups. So one group's called the, uh, what are they called? The Reformed Nazarenes yes. org. Mm -hmm. I think it's just one guy, but he, he sure is prolific and uh, he can write. Uh, and what they've done up to this point is very purposely said that the Bible, uh, they use the term plenary inspiration. Plenary inspiration. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and is complete for all that is necessary unto personal faith. Yes. yes. And they leave it at that. So it's an inerrant or, or fully capable for that. And they don't take it any further than that. And that's that's on purpose that they've avoided doing that. And of course, that yeah. brings a lot of controversy that they don't take that extra step and become one of those fully yeah. inerrant Bible yeah. uh, churches. And the plenary means complete, as I understand it. Fully, totally. Uh, unto personal faith. Unto personal faith. Yeah. 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 Uh, what do we do? Uh, we... How do we uh, acknowledge that? How do we relate to people who feel that they must so look at the scriptures, must so understand the Bible, plenary, uh, uh, inerrant, inspired word of God? Um, I think for, I've come to a point in my life, my journey in faith is uh, to understand that's maybe something that people... It's the only reference they've ever known in their life, and it's very, very difficult to, um, without a tremendous effort, to, uh, what uh, enhance their view, look a little bit more, and say, hey, there, there, there's a few more things that maybe we could understand that enhances the Word of God rather than constricts it uh, to this simply historical. Um, inerrant uh, word of God that is so literally read in every way. There are things in the scriptures that cannot be totally, literally understood and to be consistent with one another. And uh, it doesn't, it, 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 it's not very helpful to simply say, well, we have to accept it by faith. Our faith needs to also be uh, critical and say, how is this? How does this work? Why is it this way? What's going on here? And uh, so... Uh, and I feel like we're honoring to God to be that way, to use the mind that he's given us to ask these questions. Indeed. Yes. Uh, I was uh, this last week uh, celebrated with my nephew, uh, who's a major in the army, looking at a promotion to be a lieutenant colonel. <laughs> and I remember as a little kid, but he's grown up and uh, now he's serving in the military. And he says, Uncle Art, uh, can a Christian actually have doubts hmm. about certain things? 
And uh, as we talked, it became clear that uh, maybe truly uh, earnest Christians need to evaluate and say, I wonder if this is the way it really is. And when you say, I wonder, it doesn't mean you doubt the whole existence of God and the whole presence of his mercy in Christ Jesus or anything like that, so much as maybe there's ways in which I can better understand this and the ways in which I learned in Sunday school. Uh, when I was a six-year-old, and it was pretty tough to explain that uh, heaven isn't just all up there somewhere and hell is way down there and we're in the middle. Uh, there's a little bit more to this understanding of the afterlife and, and the place uh, like heaven and hell, using that simply as an example, uh, than just looking at it flatly saying, okay, heaven's up there, hell's down there. Uh, we need to, yes, uh, follow our instincts and, and wonder, do the curious things and, uh, you know, um, ask ourselves, what is the meaning of what God is doing for us today. Look at these words in the scriptures. Look at them very seriously and ask, what does it mean? And go with that. And the other side of it is, how do we, to what degree can we reconcile? Uh, with other people, other beliefs. Well, I, I'm thinking specifically of someone in your situation who has an entire, you know, the, the your home denomination has has been uh, separated, and and there's still separation between individuals to this day because of this. Is there a way toward reconciliation at the personal level? Do Do you have people who you're working with or calling or That's a good question meeting yes. with or Yes. Right now, I'm, I, I, I've been uh, a retired pastor in the ELCA for, oh goodness, since it's, I was uh, part of the LCA two years before the formation of the ELCA. So I have been an ELCA pastor the entire length of the ELCA's existence, okay. uh, which one of the things that the ELCA uh, community faith is seeking to do is to celebrate this um, uh, this interconnectedness we have as Christians. We may come from different backgrounds and different uh, ways in which we got into the faith. We may come from different Christian uh, traditions. We are still Christians. And, uh, you know, something like uh, John 3.16 doesn't say God so loved the world that he... It doesn't say God so loved the Lutheran Church, or God so loved the Catholic Church, or the Baptist Church, or, or even God so loved the Christians so much that he gave his own. He loved the world, the world. And the world is the object of, uh, the object of God's mission. And he invites us as the people of God, the church, to be part of that. The world is where he's reaching out to all of us, the world, and he's inviting us to be part of that outreach. So, yes, uh, to include others. Uh, and I think this particular time, you know, last week, we're, what is today, March 17th? 
St. Patrick's Day. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, he didn't quite get rid of all the snakes, did he? <laughs> but last week, there was this horrific thing in the Netherlands. And, you know, it has those religious overtones of the slaughter of these 50 people now, I understand, died. Did you say Netherlands? Uh, New Zealand. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. It's New Zealand. Uh, it, it, there's an element there of faith that this was done in some distorted understanding of uh, what the right thing to do is, white nationalism, and uh, attacking, of course, the Muslims. We, I just read, uh, shortly before starting this uh, podcast, I uh, just read a uh, word from our bishop in the ELCA who called us to reach out to the Muslim community with her mm. sympathy and support and to recognize we all come back to some basic foundation, historical foundations back in the Old Testament with Abraham. And uh, these are not to be people that we cannot relate to. These are people we must find a way to relate to. We either learn to live together in peace or one of us is going to kill the other. Indeed, yes. Isn't that the truth? Uh, it's, it's, uh, I think, again, fear is one of the biggest drivers in this whole thing. That, my goodness, I don't know about you. You're, you didn't grow up in the same pew as I did, in the same church as I did. I fear you. I don't know where you're, what might happen. We need to get past that uh, oh, paranoia and uh, recognize that, no, God kind of built everybody about the same. Uh, we all bleed the same color, I think. Blood is the same color. And we all have the same hurts and same needs. Yes. Well, we'll try to take this and uh, with this word go out and still be able to have fellowship with others that believe differently. I want to just make one mention. I brought a book along that I, uh, it's called, I'll just give you the title of it, The Heart of Christianity, subtitle Rediscovering a Life of Faith, and a subtitle to the subtitle, How We Can Be Passionate Believers Today. The author is a gentleman by the name of Marcus Borg, B-O-R-G, available at Amazon. Um, thank you, Dr. Borg. Uh, passed away, I think, about a year, year and a half ago. Started out as a Lutheran, ended up as an Episcopalian. But what he has done here is said, uh, put together his thoughts in terms of how we can get past this very, very hard conservative understanding of a uh, literal interpretation of everything, or if it's not literal, it cannot be true, to an understanding of uh, some of the more basic fundamental thoughts, which kind of go beyond just words. That's my, those are my expressions. Uh, the poetic, the worshipful way of uh, understanding God. A second book is, uh, I would like to recommend to anybody, A More Christ-Like God, the author being Bradley Jersak, J-E-R-S-A-K. But a more Christ-like God subtitle, A More Beautiful Gospel, in which he also discusses some of these very, very important uh, 
elements of uh, controversy that we're talking about here. Jersak himself also having uh, moved from church to church. He did. Yes. Yeah. He's part of the, I think he's a Canadian, a Canadian evangelical. Uh, but uh, yes, he's made some, some movement there himself. Right. I think, I think he is orthodox at this point. Or at one point along I, the journey, I believe right. he was. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think he started out in a very strictly uh, traditional evangelical background of some sort. Canadian, I think. I believe so. Yeah. Canadian evangelical? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's not the political group, the evangelical <laughs> right. But, uh, I should read to yeah. find out a little more about him. Yes, uh, a more Christ-like God is is exactly in line with what we've been talking about. Yeah. yeah. So I'll put a link to both of those in the description. Great. Yeah. All right. Thank oh, you. Oh, there's many, many others, but these are two good ones. Reverend Otto, thank you so much for joining us well, and uh, sharing your personal experience with your perspective of the uh, Seminex and what happened with the Missouri Synod, and we we hope for the best for the future for for both sides and everyone involved in that. Oh, my pleasure, Ed. Goodness. Continue the journey. Just continue the journey. Uh, it's a wonderful journey to be on. Yes. With that, we'd like to thank people uh, as we finish up here. If this has been helpful to you or you know somebody who's going through challenges in their faith and it's changing from what they used to have to something different, maybe it's scary, we, we ask that you recommend this podcast for them. Thank you. Thank you.